Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a bumper edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post, recording here on a sunny afternoon in Hong Kong, where the volume of events seem to be once again reaching some sort of crescendo. We started this morning with news that Canada is banning China's tech giant Huawei from its 5G network. Meanwhile, Beijing has dispatched its special representative for Europe to Brussels as part of its ongoing diplomatic rescue mission to salvage relations that have soured over Beijing's refusal to condemn Russia's invasion and war on Ukraine. That came after last night's news that the United Nations Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet confirmed she will indeed be visiting China next week, including a visit to Xinjiang making her the first human rights chief to visit mainland China since 2005. This as the US President Joe Biden packs his presidential slippers and prepares to board Air Force One for historic engagements in Japan and South Korea. Of course, before he's even crossed the international dateline, this also reports North Korea's Kim Jong-un is preparing either a ballistic missile launch or a nuclear test, timed for when Air Force One touches down in Tokyo. Now, Joe Biden's visit to Japan is principally about a meeting of the Quad with Japan's Fumio Kishida, India's Mahindra Modi, and I can't tell you who's going from Australia because one of the most divisive, spiteful, and arguably most important election campaigns in that nation's history ends tomorrow. And there just might be a new Prime Minister and Foreign Minister sworn in to attend on Monday. You're going to hear from our colleague based in Beijing, Xi Jinping, talking about some heated phone calls from China's senior diplomats to their American counterparts about this upcoming Quad meeting, as well as what he's hearing from senior analysts and sources in Beijing about the rising concerns over an Asian NATO. You're also going to hear about the other East Asian nation who's been invited along to this meeting. But Joe Biden's also pushing a new trade deal for the region. Are you ready for IPEF? You'll hear from a veteran Asian trade expert who's going to peel away the buzzwords and rhetoric to get to the reality of whether Joe Biden can re-establish US trade dominance in Asia after the isolationism of the Trump years. Let's tuck right in. Xi Jiangtao is our veteran diplomacy expert on the China desk for the South China Morning Post. Jiangtao, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Now, today's headlines are dominated, well, by a couple of things. One of them is the imminent visit of US President Joe Biden to this side of the world for a quad meeting in Japan and a visit to South Korea's newly elected president. But it sounds like Beijing has already made its feelings pretty clear. Can you tell us more about the phone call from China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi to his Japanese counterpart, Yoshimasa Hiyashi, earlier this week? Uh, yes, uh, Wang Yi talked to his Japanese counterpart, Wednesday, and uh, I think it's a it's a very heated exchange with Chinese uh, diplomat uh, lashing out uh, at Tokyo 
Wang used very strong language uh, accusing Japan uh, of destabilizing bilateral ties with negative moves on Taiwan and other issues involving China's core interests and major concerns. As you might know, it's not the first time. Actually, in recent weeks, Beijing has stepped step up its rhetoric against uh, uh, the Kishida government. Earlier this month, and China actually slammed Japan's Prime Minister Kishida for provoking confrontation between China and major powers after Kishida made a five-nation Asian-European tour. And at the end of that tour, Kishida and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson signed a landmark pact to rapidly accelerate defense and security ties. And Beijing was uh, furious about that. And uh, on Wednesday, uh, Wang Yi was particularly uh, unhappy about Tokyo's hosting of the court summit. Zhang Tao, you said this phone call was fiery between Wang Yi and his Japanese counterpart. What were the things that stood out? Actually, there are several things. One is on Taiwan. Beijing continues to uh, accuse Japan of supporting uh, the pro-independence government in Taiwan. And, and also Beijing is very strong about um, Tokyo's alliance with the U- United States in forming the court alliance against China. Uh, actually, in Wang's own words, he said, what makes people pay attention to and be vigilant is that even before the U.S. leader embarks on his trip, the viewpoint that Japan and the United States drawing hands to confront China was already rampant, creating a foul atmosphere, according to Chinese official statement. Zheng Tao, on that Wednesday of that fiery phone call, it looked like almost as if to make a point Two Chinese bombers flew between Okinawa Island and Miyako Island, southwest of Japan's main islands. It was exploiting a gap in Japanese airspace, but is there a sense that Beijing is stepping up its military patrols around Japanese territory in response to this more hawkish nature of the Kishida government? Uh, I would say Beijing is uh, continuing its hawkish stance against its neighbors, including Japan and Taiwan. Uh, Actually, Hayashi also expressed uh, serious concerns over the situation in the East and South China Sea in his call with Wang Yang Wednesday. Actually, Hayashi also took a veiled swipe at at China over its equivalent stance uh, on Ukraine. And that's fascinating because, as we've discussed before on this podcast, it's quite easy to forget that Russia is so big that its eastern border is shared with Japan and there are still serious issues over the islands north of the main Japanese islands shared with Russia. Is there a sense that Japan is going to put more pressure on China to influence Russia over its war in Ukraine? I think so, because uh, Ukraine will be high on Biden's agenda during his uh, tour of Japan and South Korea, Uh, apart from Taiwan, apart from uh, the... Indo-Pacific economic framework. Zheng Tao, on the same day as this fiery phone call uh, between uh, Wang Yi and, and Japan, we had US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on a Zoom call to China's senior foreign diplomat Yang Zhiqi. What do we know about this? What was talked about? Actually, it was the third uh, exchanges between Yang Zhiqi and Sullivan after the Biden administration took office a year ago. In a way, it's uh, sort of paved the way for another direct communication between Biden and Xi Jinping later this month. 
Because Sullivan just said on board the Air Force One that uh, he would not be surprised if Biden and Xi Jinping speak again in the coming few weeks. Literally, I think he meant um, after Biden's Asia trip. So uh, Yang Jishu was very uh, was very particular about the Taiwan issue. Although it's not the first time that China used such language, but it's a bit unusual for, for, for Beijing to lash out at uh, both uh, the United States and Japan almost at the same time. Actually, Yang Jishu said, uh, if the US side persists in playing the Taiwan card and go further down the wrong path, it will surely put the situation in serious jeopardy. And Yang Jiechi went on to warn that Beijing would take firm action to safeguard its sovereignty and security interests. And the US side can count on China to keep its promise. Uh, according to Chinese analysts, the harsh rhetoric from both Wang Yi and Yang Jiechi reflected Beijing's deepening concerns about an, an accelerating effort uh, led by Washington and Tokyo uh, to support Taiwan and to curb Beijing, in, especially in the wake of Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. And the strong statements on Taiwan from both Wang Yi and Yang Jiechi underline Beijing's concerns about a possible pulling out of the US one China policy, uh, especially as the Biden administration is finalizing its China policy. And Zhengtao, we're still waiting for US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to deliver what was yeah. supposed to be this major uh, China policy speech that was postponed uh, a fortnight ago when Mr. Blinken contracted COVID-19. So I guess we're still waiting for the Biden administration to actually enunciate what its China policy is. Yes, indeed. I think China has good reasons to be worried about uh, the prospects of the cross-strait relations. Zhengtao, what are your sources telling you from Beijing about this Quad meeting? What are they expecting to see? What's their forecast for what happens next? During Biden's Asia visit, he will not only meet uh, Japanese and South Korean leaders, he's going to, uh, he's going to meet uh, Australian leaders from Australia and India as well. The leaders are expected to, uh, to focus on the Ukraine crisis as well as uh, threats from China. I think for China, such an anti-China alliance is always its worst nightmare. And also South Korea is expected to be invited as an observer to this Quad summit in Japan. We can understand the, uh, China's fear about the Quad from two aspects. Externally, the emergence of an anti-China alliance will put China in a more isolated spot. And uh, as China is turning inwards, the major powers in the world are realigning themselves, especially in the wake of the Ukraine crisis. The reason why Beijing feared so much is that um, most of those alliances are targeting Beijing. We, use, we usually say uh, diplomacy is an extension of domestic politics. For Beijing, its top priority is its regime stability, especially in such a sensitive year ahead of the Communist Party Congress later this year. There's nothing more important than, the reg than regime stability. China does not want to become a second Russia, especially after what happened to uh, Putin's invasion plan. I think it's very interesting that South Korea has been invited to become an observer at this quad meeting in Tokyo, Zhengtao. I'm guessing that really plays into the fears in Beijing of an Asian NATO. 
Yes, indeed. Because just a few years ago, uh, China believes uh, the court is just an empty rhetoric. And now the court is rapidly becoming an effective grouping, which has achieved significant progress over the years because they have regular senior level meetings, they have uh, many working groups, and they have more security corporations and annual military drills among themselves. So Beijing has good reasons to feel threatened. Although all the members of the court have stated that they are not targeting China and they are they have no plan to form such a Asian leader. At face value, Zhang Tiao, that would seem only true for India. The other three nations have a clear intentions uh, about containing China and have communicated as such. But let me ask you about this other big announcement or big proposal that Joe Biden is bringing to Japan. He wants to push nations in this region to sign on to his new IPEF Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Trade Agreement. How is this being received in Beijing? It does look like another version of the TPP agreement aimed at containing China. Yes, Beijing is deeply worried uh, because uh, in the past, uh, the US has been under fierce attack uh, over the absence of an economic and trade arm of its uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. And Trump's decision to withdraw the US from TPP has been one of the biggest blunders uh, during his presidency. Many see American withdrawal from the TPP as a message, clear message, that the U.S. is uh, is disengaging itself from Asian neighbors, and uh, especially and creating uh, a big vacuum for other players to fill in, including China. Obviously, there's a lot more to come on this. We'll be watching very closely your reporting, the China Desk, and the analysis pieces going up on scp.com. As always, Xi Jingtao, it's great to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Now, as you heard from Xi Jingtao, one of the things high on Joe Biden's agenda is a new trade deal, a new acronym, a new strategy for competing with China, and a new level of complexity to global trade to be known as the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the IPEF, or as no doubt we'll be hearing from now on, the IPEF. Long-time listeners would know this podcast began life some years ago as the US-China trade war update. And my colleague Finbar Birmingham and the team expended a lot of time and effort on following the various trade agreements from the TPP to the CPTPP to the RCEP, otherwise known as RCEP. So of course, I messaged him in desperation over how to understand exactly what the Biden administration is proposing and what this means. And he duly pointed me in the direction of a veteran trade expert based in Singapore. Dr. Deborah Elms is founder and executive director of the Asian Trade Center. She's served on the Trade and Investment Council of the World Economic Forum, and she publishes the Talking Trade blog. Dr. Elms, thank you for your time. Thank you. Can I hand you a sword and ask you to slice through the Gordian knot of acronyms and trade deals What exactly does the IPEF mean and why is it being proposed? Sure. So the IPEF, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, will be launched this weekend during U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to Asia. It's intended to do several things, but most crucially, it's intended to show that the United States is economically anchored in Asia. And that's important because the United States, as your listeners will know, pulled out from the Trans-Pacific Partnership 
at the time, that was the U.S. economic engagement in the region. When they pulled out under the U.S. President Donald Trump's administration, that left the United States with no economic leg for engagement with parties across this region. And that's been a gaping hole, I would argue, in U.S. policy for the last five years. And this administration has finally decided to try something different with the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, as a means to allow the United States to talk with its allies and partners in Asia on trade and economic issues. You mentioned five years. I'm tempted to ask you, has the horse bolted? How is the IPEF expected to work within the existing trade agreements like the RCEP, RCEP, and CPTPP? It's meant to be a very different kind of agreement. So when we see, well, first of all, when we see the launch, you'll notice the difference right away because the launch is going to be a very short document that says that we agree, we the undersigned basically agree to discuss the following kinds of topics. So right there, it's very different from a traditional trade agreement. And then the manner in which it's being negotiated is also different. It has four pillars attached to IPEF Three of them are sort of pick and choose, decide what you want, a la carte dining. And then one pillar on fair trade is meant to be an eat the whole thing. You know, you take the entire pillar on and that's quite different. And then at the end, what are we actually agreeing to is also different from a traditional trade agreement. There are not as many rules and there are no market access commitments. So we're not opening up markets to one another. It's about, I think... Again, it's early days, so we're not sure yet because the members themselves will have to negotiate. But it's more about cooperating and discussing alignment around certain kinds of topics or principles. And that is going to look quite different from the legally binding hundreds of pages of rules and thousands of pages of country-specific schedules that we see in trade agreements like CPTPP and RCEP. So what are you hearing from your industry sources, your your members about this? What's the response? I think for the moment, because we haven't yet launched, there is guarded optimism among many American companies and American trade watchers because they are they are hopeful that this new approach results in something useful. But there's also a concern that this approach will not find very many takers that there will not be that many people who want to sign up to this unusual type of trade arrangement. And at the end, it will deliver very few benefits, particularly for companies. Since market access, which is a key driver of most trade agreements, is off the table from the United States at the outset, it makes it hard to come up with an an outcome that businesses will find interesting that can be sold to all of the participants as a sort of win-win I recall back in 2015, the then U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter described the TPP agreement as strategically important as another aircraft carrier. The TPP was torpedoed by Donald Trump. I'm wondering how this IPEF trade deal differs in its aims, and is it directed at China? I would say if the TPP was an aircraft carrier, this is a small speedboat or even a rowboat. I mean, it is really a very different kind of agreement that is intended to show U.S. engagement in the region, but I suspect will have a blizzard of depressing headlines next week after the initial launch of the discussions. In addition to the problems of 
having unclear levels of ambition around IPEF. A second challenge for potential parties in this negotiation is that it has been framed as a contain China and anti-China or has an element of concern about China in it. And that is deeply problematic for most of the governments in Asia who, whether they are wildly enthusiastic about China's policies, have to live with China in their neighborhood and have China as their most important economic partner. So it's very, this balancing act, even for some of the U.S. closest friends and allies, is difficult. And IPEF puts a sort of point on it and says, you have to start making choices. And that is deeply problematic for a lot of Asian governments. We've done some reporting on the new government or the new president in South Korea and the historic level of diplomatic engagement, both from China and the U.S., to greet the new president. Is this where this is going to focus that choice, that tough choice, the most, do you think? Is it South Korea that's facing the toughest balancing act of its relationship with mainland China and the U.S.? I think it's actually an issue for all of the governments in the region because China is the number one or number two importer and exporter for all of them. And in an export and trade dependent region, that matters a lot. IPEF, I'm not sure on its own will cause you to make specific choices because, again, the commitments are going to be at the moment relatively limited and relatively light. If it's just about cooperation, discussions about how do we get you know, a greener, more carbon-free economy, how do we discuss making supply chains resilient, then I, I think even governments on the, the challenging edge of dealing with both China and the United States can say with a straight face, we haven't made a choice one way or the other. We're simply discussing issues that matter to all of us. If, if we get to more challenging topics like the digital economy, where we have quite different approaches to managing and regulating digital trade between US and China, if that part of the IPEF discussions takes off, that could be slightly more challenging for members to balance between these two important players in the region. But the rest of the agreement, the rest of the IPEF agreement or agreements are probably going to be done in a way that it won't clearly force governments to choose. And remember that all of these IPEF potential economies in Asia are already tied together through RCEP and potentially through lots of other agreements, CPTPP, lots of bilateral trade agreements, ASEAN level commitments, ASEAN itself. So they're already quite linked together uh, even before we have IPEF get started. And you mentioned pre-existing agreements like RCEP, CPTPP. Who's the referee who blows the whistle and declares which agreement is, you know, overrides the other? First of all, I would say, how do we know which agreement is most useful? I think it depends on what businesses decide, because at the end of the day, governments can negotiate, but they're designed for use by business. If business essentially vote with their feet, they will choose to use one of the agreements over the others. And of the number of agreements that we have on the table in this region, the most useful for business by far is the CPTPP, because that gives comprehensive benefits, even though it's a complicated agreement. The benefits are clear even for small firms. So that's one where firms ought to be using CPTPP if they're not already. RCEP 
will deliver benefits. Some of those benefits are going to take a while to show up, though, because the agreement just came into force at the beginning of this year. We're still working out some of the you know kinks around how it actually works and how to get firms ready to use it. And some of the early benefits are, are fairly modest, especially tariff cuts. So we don't see a lot of firms using RCEP yet. I mean, it's still May. And for some countries, actually, they just started in the, C in the RCEP. So we will see RCEP gaining momentum. Uh, and I think that's, that's important. Um, who decides which agreement goes first beyond business or if we had a disagreement about something? Most of these deals have a dispute settlement system in them, and the dispute settlement system says there are multiple approaches you could use. Once you choose one, you need to use it to the end. So if you decide to use the dispute mechanism in CPTPP, then you have to use that until you're done. And then you could potentially look at what RCEP delivers, even between members that are in both agreements. So it's, it's a combination in terms of how do we decide which one wins, if that's the question. Part of it is the, the agreement that's most useful for business is the one that will get the most use, of course. And on disputes, specifically, governments do have choices now, and they will probably as well choose to manage a dispute through the mechanism that they find most appealing for solving their particular problem. And I would say in Asia, before we get too, too sort of hyped up on dispute settlement, Asian governments tend to dislike dispute settlement mechanisms outside of the global uh, arrangements in the World Trade Organization. And so they don't typically have an argument with one another using the formal mechanism in a trade agreement. They tend to like to discuss disputes in a quiet, bilateral, behind-the-scenes mechanism rather than in some kind of public way using the formal levers that they have given themselves in these various trade agreements. Dr. Elms, is this another example of how the WTO is being essentially sidelined in global trade, especially in this part of the world? I think that the members have recognized, especially in Asia, very trade-dependent Asia, that the global system has been creaking under stresses and strains for quite some time. And if you want to ensure continued market opening and you want to ensure continued trade integration, you cannot continue to rely on the WTO. Uh, and that, I think, is a very unfortunate situation. I think all of these trade agreements are built on top of WTO foundations. So if the WTO genuinely stopped working, it would be problematic even if we have these trade agreements. Because think about the WTO as the foundation of your house. All of these agreements are built on top of that foundation. And if we didn't have the WTO, you would have to sudden, suddenly sort of jack up the house and rebuild the foundation underneath. That would be very difficult. And so I think Asian governments as a whole would say WTO is critically important to their success and survival. But if it's going to be under threat, then we need more than just a foundation. We also need the house on top. Let's build the biggest, most luxuriant a house on top of that foundation so that we can continue to live in comfort no matter what help happens outside. So what's your forecast for this IPEF agreement, assuming Joe Biden manages to get nations to sign on? What's the impact in the short and medium term? I think this is a heavy lift. I mean, I would like to remain cautiously optimistic as well, but I think it's it's the structure, it's the orientation, it's the lack of clear deliverables that will make it hard for 
potential partners to sign on to this IPEF and to negotiate with the same level of intensity that they give to other trade agreement and other trade arrangements that they have crisscrossing Asia. So I think it's, it's an interesting approach to say, let's try something completely different. But I think at the end of the day, Asia will default to what it knows works which are traditional style trade agreements. And IPEF is likely to end up uh, sort of ongoing intermittent negotiations that eventually results in sort of minor commitments that may or may not be useful to companies. Dr. Deborah Elms, this has been very helpful for me and for our audience. Thank you very much for your time. Sure. Thank you very much. That's all we have for you this week. And that's all we have for you for a couple of weeks because I'm taking a bit of a break so I can head back to the sunburnt country and see my family for the first time in a couple of years. Of course, you'll be served well by my colleagues in the Washington, New York, Brussels, London, Beijing, Shanghai and Shenzhen bureaus, as well as the 24-hour newsroom right here in Hong Kong. Just head along to scmp.com for the latest breaking news and analysis. Don't forget to follow the SEMP Political Economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. I'm at Jay Watt. So for now, stay safe, stay socially distant. Keep that mask on. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.